wondering, I know this is a this is a deep question and we're not on Oprah or anything. That's all right. Hello and welcome to the second ever This Should Work podcast, which I guess makes it session two now. This Should Work is a podcast about craft, making, and scaling projects up. It's a celebration of doers and the things that those doers make. People who take their passions to the next level by bringing their physical ideas to market. My name is Jay Margulis, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be speaking with Rudy Ristich, the technical mind behind the ThoughtCon Hacker Conference custom circuit board badges and vice president of the Hackerspace Workshop 88. In this session, we'll be talking about the process behind creating conference badges. We'll also be talking about what makes people curious. And finally, we'll be talking about scaling your own hardware projects up. Before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about this new podcast series. So the thing that got me really interested in this project, and as I look forward to uh, all the people that we'll be uh, interviewing throughout our sessions, is, is that all of the people that we're going to be talking with think really big about what they're doing. They think uh, beyond the scope of what other people typically recognize. And, and a lot of these people also um, consider themselves a part of you know, uh, the, the maker crowd or the, the craft crowd or, or what have you. And so what that means is, you know, these, these people who are, are thinking outside the boundaries and, and thinking beyond, you know, the, the present uh, circumstances um, often lend us some insight into where this whole thing, this whole maker thing and craft thing uh, might be headed. Whether that's you know talking with somebody who's looking at scaling projects up, or talking to somebody who runs a hackerspace um, that that you know does not fit the traditional mold, or or perhaps talking to a maker who doesn't fit what the current depiction of what makers are, um, uh, you know, resembles. So I think that's that's the interesting thing about this this whole show. Um, hopefully, or at least the the interesting thing about the people that we're interviewing is that they're they're thinking big and they're thinking outside the boundaries of of what uh, what you see represented in popular media about uh, making. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. And uh, if you're looking for any of the show notes that we have uh, or any other information on the podcast, please visit shouldworkmedia.com. That's shouldworkmedia.com. And without further ado, here's session two. All right, so we are on session number two. I have Rudy Ristich with me. Uh, Rudy and I have worked together for uh, nearly a decade now, and more recently we've been uh, collaborating on a project that he's been working on for a very long time and I've only been working on for a couple of years, uh, which is the ThoughtCon Badge Project, and we'll talk about that today. But originally, Rudy and I met through Workshop 88, where he is still... Are you still the vice president there, Rudy? I think somehow I'm uh-huh. still <laughs> vice president. Yeah, I, I got to say, I I don't spend as much time there as I would like or that I have in the past, uh, just based on my working conditions. But I am, uh, I believe, still an officer there, yes. 
Great. So we've got the, uh, we do the ThoughtCon badges together. Um, you know, I've known each other for a very long time, used to play tennis together. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we started Workshop 88 a long, long time ago. Um, so yeah. what I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to do today, Rudy, is first welcome you. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, and second, you know, I wanted to start off uh, by talking about, um, you know, your background. Uh, I know you have uh, a double E uh, degree. And so maybe if you could talk about that a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about um, badge life and the badges that we've been working on and that you've worked on before that even. And, and then we'll probably talk about um, Workshop 88 a little bit too. But yeah, if we could if we could start off by talking about you know just you know where you come from, what your your educational and vocational background is, um, and then maybe we can start talking about how that informs your current work too. Sure. Uh, so where I come from, the Chicago suburbs, <laughs> where I am now. So I um, you know grew up uh, in the West Burbs and uh, went away to Purdue University and studied electrical and computer engineering there. And that's that's what my formal schooling is in. Uh, vocationally, I, I work in information security. I'm a strategist for a large financial institution. And how I got into information security was, uh, you know, through my electronics work. So while I was studying, I, I thought my path uh, and career was going to be in, in chip design because that was the uh, curriculum that I really honed in on, had, had some really great um, professors and advisors there and got to work on some, you know, fabricating of, of custom IC circuits. Uh, and then one of the circuits that I ended up working on was a, a network accelerator, so a, a custom circuit. For, for network processing, uh, and the same advisor had been working on a security project um, for protections for hardware security, um, stack canaries and things like that built into hardware. And I just started delving into all of these, um, you know, security type topics and at the time uh, actually becoming uh, a focused uh security professional was was something that was just emerging um not as aggressively as, as what's out there today like in our industry right now i think i was just listening to the statistic um, that they were giving us is there's a negative eight percent in employment rate uh, unemployment rate meaning that for every person out there that wants a job there's there's eight percent more opportunity than there are uh, people willing to fill that so um that definitely a, a field that's that's still up and coming and has a lot of need uh but got got into the work uh, by virtue of uh, of doing a project in the area and then you know as a as a teenager i was i was very much into um kind of like the 2600 uh, type scene where, you know, folks were building things like red boxes and blue boxes. I, I liked electronics a lot in high school and uh, did a lot of like tinkering on my own. And oh, uh, what's yeah. uh could, what's 2600 just for, for people who might not know what that is. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2600 is a publication, a quarterly publication that's been around since I, I think maybe the late eighties. I have to do a fact check on that there. But um, since I've been a kid, um, I think they were on volume eight when I was in high school. Uh, so probably at least since the mid eighties, if not early nineties, uh, where it, it, it was really just people writing editorial style articles, either opinion pieces on, on privacy or, or how to you know, 
accomplish things with with technology. You can still go into Barnes and Nobles today, um, which I was surprised Barnes and Nobles still existed on a recent trip I was on <laughs> and wandered into one and then uh, saw one sitting in the corner of the magazine rack, which which is where it typically is because you know it's a numbered magazine, numbered periodical. So they put it all the way at the end before you get right. to uh, you know before you get to any of the alphabetical magazines. So it's easy to spot if you're looking for it down in the corner. Um, so running and, and grabbing that brought back a lot of really good memories because. So- so 2600 is a is a, a magazine that's a quarterly excuse me a quarterly that's still out yeah and uh, okay i got gotcha. 2600.org i think is the is the website and then okay. you can go there and you can get back copies I, I think i have all of them on like pdf and then i have um a ton of of the ones you know from the time i was a kid just to get them randomly but i stopped buying them at some point in time and it was sure. really great to see it and then you know pick up a physical book and read the articles and stuff like that something you don't do too so often these days so that got you into that got you into tinkering yeah um but but I'm I'm also interested in in this transformation, and this is something that you know um, in our last session with with Andrew Camaradella from Pumping Station One, uh-huh. we kind of talked about too, which is this this kind of interesting um, a, a bleed over of of skills or or maybe transformation that a lot of people take, where you know maybe you you study to become one thing, and and you, you know you you certainly retain those skills, but. But you also kind of move, you shift into different places as, as um, you know, you move through your professional life. Do you do you think that your your background and 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 your undergraduate degree informs a lot of the work that you do now as a professional, or is it something that you you primarily use in? And, you know, the projects that we work on that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. No, it definitely all links together. Uh, you know, there, there's like this builder breaker dichotomy that you have you know, to, to be effective at, at breaking systems. You, you need to know how they're built and, and know how how typically they, they would be arranged uh, and then breaking things. And, um, you know, what, what we call in our um profession threat modeling, like understanding how systems are attacked, um, is kind of the inverse of, of designing a system, right? You know, how, how do you find its weakest points and then exploit those is, is a lot of how we work our strategy, or at least it's the foundation for building a strategy. So very interesting. I have a, so I have a very unique, um, uh, not a unique interest, but I have a very strong interest in this idea, um, and maybe I, let's explore that a little bit. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about, so you mentioned, um, you know, kind of understanding how systems work, uh, but then, but then also being able to work backwards through them, uh, to, to break them. What does that, what does that process look like to you? Um, you know, you know, it, it could be in anything in, in, in your profession, in, um, you know, the, the side projects that you work on, what is, how do you approach that, that process of understanding and then, and then finding weaknesses and exploiting them, or maybe strengthening those weaknesses, or or, or whatever else you, uh, you you may find. Okay, so from from a, uh, a finding you know an exploiting weaknesses perspective, uh, you know a lot of like the fundamental uh, 
kind of methodology you typically go about is is as basic as stimulus and response you know it's like i have this thing um i kind of understand what what's the surface of inputs that it will take you know how, how can i how can i probe it how can i send it information and then you know just throw throw a bunch of information at it you know sometimes it's random uh information and just see how it reacts uh, you know process called fuzzing um and, and a lot of times it, it's not random it's very specific like i'm, I'm trying to manipulate this uh um, this application into doing something very specific that I know how, you know, and then what comes to mind is, is things like SQL injection or, or command injection and in web applications, you know, understanding fundamentally what, what happens underneath the hood and then seeing if I can circumvent the, the flow of that execution and, and have it, uh, perform some something uh, based on the input that I put in there. Um, and then on the other side, you know, when, when you're securing the system, it, it goes back to that threat modeling um, kind of uh, concept that I brought up earlier where you understand, all right, what are my assets that I need to protect? And then what are the threats against those assets? And then how, how do, what are the mitigating controls I can put in between? Uh, and then, how do I ensure that there's no gaps in those controls? So it's it's going from from the end state and and building up defenses. So okay, what one of the things that you mentioned is or you know kind of talked about a lot in there is uh, is the actual like working with the system and doing something and acting to mm -hmm. understand it, and that's interesting to me because that that in in some ways or, or perhaps in many ways is the antithesis to, you know, how, how some learning is promoted in, in uh, the educational process, K-12, and mm -hmm. even in academia, where, where you, you more theorize about these things. And so I wonder, yeah. you know, it, with what you do, how, how important is the theory and how important is the actual, is the action, is the engagement with the system to understanding it? How do you, you know, if you could, I'm not asking you for percentage necessarily, but if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, I'd, I'd say, you know, practicality is, is far from theory, right? There's, there's tons of stuff, especially in, um, information security theory that, that works on paper, um, or is a good way to mentally model things, but then how you go about stuff in practice, there's, there's a lot of ins and outs. Um, you, primarily, uh, you know, there's things that you can do that, um, are, are theoretically or fundamentally probably ideal or will give you the most secure um, uh, kind of system. But uh, if you're, uh, it, you know, if, if there's things that you have to deal with in, in the real world, like budget constraints, um, practicality, uh, that, you know, there's a triad of, of concepts and security. Um, you know, they call it the CIA uh, triad, confidentiality, um, availability, uh, and integrity, right? And and those are the three things that that you have, you know, to to manage in the in the trade-offs for for security. So, if you if you compromise one of those three concepts, then then you've you've pretty much failed to secure the system. So there there's there's things that you could probably do from a from a academic perspective, uh, but you couldn't really do practically in the real world. So, um, you. You know, and you clearly enjoy this too. You know, this is this is something I've known you for for a pretty long time. Yeah, and this is something that you're really passionate about. And I wonder, I wonder if this is, you know, as we talk about understanding systems, um, if this and 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 just knowing you and seeing this as a thread that kind of works through a lot of the things that you do, and probably why 
you know, we, we, uh, we get along so well. Um, what is it about understanding systems that, that brings you, um, if, and, and I, you know, I apologize if I'm making assumptions and, and this isn't true, but is, is it, is it, I guess, that understanding systems kind of gets you interested in whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's, you know, uh, during your day job or, or, you know, with the badge work and stuff that we're going to get into talking about in a little bit. And, and what is it about that, that if that's true, if that interests you? Um, well, I'll say, I, I think it's, it's kind of the other way around. I think fundamentally, um, my most dominant, um, kind of personality trait is I'm a, I'm a curious person, right? So, uh, on account of being a curious person, I, I, gravitate towards understanding how things and systems work and then ultimately you know how to, how to manipulate them and extend them and stretch their limits and stuff which i think is is very much the uh you know the hacker mentality that i i i, I don't know how i got there right <laughs> i think it's just just the way i'm wired right you know um for better or worse is uh that that's how i, I just see the world right through that kind of a lens so the, the curiosity and, and wanting to know more and, and kind of get to a deeper level of, of fundamentally how how things operate and you know how can I uh, use my understanding of how those things operate to uh, you know the advantage of of you know myself or my employer or you know whatever the, whatever the objective is right so I think so let me put let me let me put this question to you yeah. then there are, there are plenty of people out there who are perfectly happy not understanding how their phone works oh yeah or, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, in systems apply. It's not just yeah, yeah, and it's but it's not just devices either. It's systems of of government and politics and so forth. Like there are plenty of people who are just perfectly happy, um, you know, not understanding these things, and and that's that's fine. I've I've uh, you know I've recognized that, and that's just a thing that um, that not everybody gravitates to. But I I've got to imagine that there's there's a reason why the people who do gravitate to that. Um, find a certain joy in, in that curiosity and, and in that understanding. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I know this is a, this is a deep question and we're not okay. on Oprah or anything. That's all right. Um, but, but what's the, do, do you have any sense of what's at the, the crux of that for you? Mm. Uh, just, uh, I like the aha moment that you get when, when you kind of put two and two things together or you, you maybe have an inkling of how something works and then you can validate that, uh, you know, either, either validate your perception, you know, it's, it's it can go either two ways and they're, they both, I, I guess, trigger a dopamine response, right? You know, the neurological level, it's like either you're correct and, and you get the good feeling that you're kind of in control and you understand what's going on or you stumble upon something novel and, and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's a new path you can, you can delve down and, and get lost in. Right. Um, so I, I guess I'd have to put it, I'd put it that way, you know, um, so you get a you get a response where other people maybe don't get that response for for some reason is what you're saying to, yeah, yeah. to, to discovering maybe. something. Yeah, I guess that that might be what it is. You know, I, I think maybe maybe people uh, are are afraid um, to some extent that like they might not understand what's happening. Um, you know, maybe it could be maybe it's a fear thing that's keeping them away, or or it's just they they don't know where to begin and uh, they're afraid to ask kind of a thing. So. Um, one of those I, yeah I, I can't say why people aren't the way i am but i can i can definitely sure. kind of postulate as to as to how 
you know, why my brain works the way it does. Right. So there's, there's, there's kind of two things that that makes me think about. And, and one of those is, um, one of my favorite, uh, humans, uh, that's still alive right now. Mm-hmm. His name is Yvonne Chouinard. He's a person who founded Patagonia, but before that, uh, well, before that, he, he also, um, founded Chouinard equipment and he's, a he's a, he's a really famous climber in mm-hmm. his own right. And he says, um, uh, Something to the effect of the the fear is un, of un, of the the fear of the unknown is one of the greatest fears of all, and so you know as you're talking about well what what is it that that uh, separates some people I think part of it isn't necessarily maybe even the curiosity end maybe it's just that um, that there's you know some people have trained themselves by circumstance or otherwise to be less afraid of that uncertainty and then that because of that are able to get to that dopamine response. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, this that's a really interesting kind of thing. I'd love to dive into more sometime. Okay, sure. Um, the, the, the second thing is, uh, there's a really great story about Albert Einstein. Okay. Um, he was given a toy, um, which is, it was one of those insatiable birds. You know what they're, oh, I'm talking about the drinking birds. That yeah. Yeah. Up they, and down. they continually like a perpetual <sighs> motion almost. Right. Right, yeah. right, right. So, you know, for, for anybody listening, if you haven't seen this thing before, you know, they bob into the, like some ink well or water well, they come back up, they bob back down, they come back up and I so on and so forth. I think about that, that Simpsons scene where he's, he's running a nuclear reactor and he's got the thing pushing the button. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they can, they can run nucle- nuclear reactors as well. <laughs> they can do all sorts of fun things. Um, but, uh, he was gifted one of these toys and, um, he, he asked himself, like, what is it, what's the, the, the substance inside of it that's making it do this? And rather than, you know, just cracking it open and, and, and looking at it, he, he spent like a week or, or a month, some, some extended amount of time, you know, crunching the numbers and, and looking into the chemistry of what could make this thing do this. Um, so that he could discover, you know, so he could have that dopamine response, that discovery. And so it's really interesting because where some people might just crack it open to get the answer, um, he 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 wanted to figure out what what the fundamental thing was before before having that answer. So um, it's really interesting that you put <clears throat> you put that this way. And um, really, I didn't anticipate diving into talking about systems that much, but I'm just so interested in your in your. Um, that's cool. I mean, take on that. engineering yeah. is, is systems, right? So systems. So let's, let, let's, uh, sorry, for, sorry for interrupting you there. Um, let's talk a little bit then about, about how you apply those ways of thinking for the last, how many years have you worked on the, the ThoughtCon, uh, conference badges for now? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I think we'll be, the next one we'll be working on will be our seventh, I want to say, because it's, okay. it's going to be the 10th iteration of the conference. And the first one we did was ThoughtCon 4. So, so four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, yeah. So it'll be the eighth actually coming up. So I've done seven and it will be eight. Okay. So seven, seven and going on eight badges. I was actually just talking with somebody the other day. Mm-hmm. And they said something to the effect of, oh, this whole badge thing, it's like, it's only been around for two years. Right? <laughs> no way. Yeah. I, said, I, I, have a, I, have, I know somebody who would beg to differ with you there. Yeah, um, you know, around well before, before I came along, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, let's see. And, and, you know, it's not just ThoughtCon that, that we've done. I mean, there's been one-off type things, uh, but, you know, ThoughtCon is the perpetual one um, just because, you know, the, 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 they, they support and, and fund that for us, which is an amazing opportunity. So definitely, you know, 
thank Nick and, and the crew at ThoughtCon for making that uh, possibility for us to, to work on the project. But um, the, uh, I guess, oh, when... Well, let me cut, let me yeah. cut you off real okay. quick. When you say they support us, who's... who's uh, I yes. mean, I know I've talked about how we work on these things, but us hasn't always been you and I and, and DePaul students. Okay. Who's us? Yeah, yeah. So us um, is, is Workshop 88, our hackerspace that uh, I, you and I coincidentally founded a decade ago. And um, it, it them, they are, are ThoughtCon, uh, now ThoughtCon NFP, the uh, organizers of the Chicago Hacking Conference. So um, Nick Prococo is the driving force behind that. And he's he's got a, a group of guys that help him put on this conference. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, a trivial or inexpensive thing to, to embark on a project like this with a production run. You know, it's, it's on the orders of tens of thousand dollars a year um, for us to be able to uh, you know, kind of make these ideas come to life and, and enhance the conference in that way. So it's, it's a great opportunity. And uh, you know, we, we worked on that as a group with with Workshop 88 for for quite some time. Um, a few years back, I started traveling pretty habitually for work and actually did a couple of them uh, on my own, uh, you know, w- without the help of the guys for for a couple of years. And then uh, the, what, two years ago, um, after the first game really took off, that's that's when we started working together so that we could bring the uh, opportunity to the uh, students at DePaul in your game design curriculum and and kind of enhance make it more of an experience than just a thing right and, and that's right. what's really keeping it uh an interesting endeavor for me is just watching it evolve that way so so in about four just speaking of one of those one-off projects maybe like four years ago ish mm-hmm. we we also worked on the uh, big data everywhere conference right badge we won't dive into that too much okay um (laughs) we we can it was an interesting concept we can talk about that a little bit i like the concept i mean that was that was probably one of the first inklings that that it could be more than than just a a physical device that does something right so like extending it um you know the concept for the map bar if i remember it correctly was uh you know we, we map bar being a big data company and and trying to illustrate that that their uh, product could um, work with sensor data. We, we created a badge that was uh, a sensor and, and had some FM data, and it happened to be around the uh, Ebola outbreak, I think, if I remember correctly. And, and so the, the game you designed, uh, or, or the, I guess, I don't know, it was a game per se, but it was an illustration where the, the one of the badges would have a virus and it would seed and spread you know throughout this this small conference that was happening in in chicago so so let's that's yeah and that was that was uh that was an interesting exercise in uh in getting these things out there and i think um you know i think one of the things we should talk about next is is maybe this process of of making these things so we talked a little bit about thoughtcon uh, it's a hacker conference. It's kind of like DEFCON, which you just got back from in Las Vegas, yep, right? Yep, just a couple days ago. So um, the concept of, of, of ThoughtCon and, and DEFCON and all these conferences is is for, um, you know, folks, uh, it, you know, you, you can say it's an information security thing, but it's really well beyond that, you know, like there, there are conferences that are specific to information security, and I'll say probably a majority of the attendees at, at events like ThoughtCon and DEFCON and on all the other conferences that go on throughout the uh, year are, are within the information security industry, but it really can go well beyond that. You know, there's, there's lawyers that attend, there's, um, 
people who who work in privacy and who you know who, who really just like to stretch the envelope of what's possible um, with with certain systems and find clever ways to to manipulate them and or, or find ways to kind of you know show how they they're insecure and, and can be tampered with right you know it's, it's more uh demonstrating you know what the possibilities are that people don't realize um in in a nefarious perspective than really um you know a protective one right so so more curious piece people basically and so you've got these mm-hmm. conferences with you know, a lot of curious people who are tinkering with systems taking them apart what have you yeah. um and at all of these conferences or at least at defcon and thoughtcon there are these badges so um you talk a little bit about what those what the what the badges are if you if you even know like how that how that got started i i, I honestly yeah don't. i mean I, I definitely do because <laughs> it kind of inspired the the work right so um when you typically attend any kind of trade show or conference you, you get a name badge uh that that kind of gives you not only like a, a way to kind of have your name out in front of someone but it kind of signifies that you're part of the group right uh, and, and actually helps with access control within a conference uh and in i want to say uh trying to think back in time probably 2006 mid 2000s or so is when uh defcon actually started having these uh pcbs as their um badge to the conference rather than your standard paper credential right um so the the guy who i i think did the first one that i know of is is joe grand um who uh ran a a company of his own called grand idea studio and he was he was an old hackerspace guy too like so when i was growing up the the guys to look up to um were the guys that uh, what was called Loft Heavy Industries, which was a hackerspace out of out of Boston. They're probably like the first hackerspace in the states, um, and and there was just uh, a group of of I think maybe not even a dozen folks that shared had some shared space in Boston and started tinkering around computer systems and finding vulnerabilities. And uh, sometimes they would. I think disclose them. Sometimes they would they would post about them and work with companies to get them fixed, and it eventually turned into a business. And a lot of these guys, uh, you know, ended up becoming uh, and still are very successful in the in the industry in various capacities. Um, I think one of them ended up, uh, you know, running um, DARPA's uh, you know, cyber. Um, let's see, I forget what they called the program, but it was it was funding for. Um, kind of cyber type um projects that, that he was he was a DARPA sure. personnel for a while. And um Joe Grand ended up running his his hardware consulting company. And then uh you know a couple of them are uh you know work for the government in various capacities or, or corporations as advisors and things like that. So so everyone from that group has yeah. kind of gone on to pretty much success. And you, you you just dropped a whole I bunch know, of things, yeah. by the way, that I'm going to include circle back in the show notes. So you'll be able to, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you'll you'll everybody who's listening will be able to find all of those in our show notes. Um, yeah. The, what's really interesting to me, and then I want to kind of talk about badge life and the the process behind the stuff you make. Um, right. Is is that loft heavy industries and and this makerspace really uh, started out. And, and this parallels a lot to what Andrew was saying too. Okay, started out as 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 a hackerspace that that was primarily focused on 
you know, the more ephemeral side of, of making, right. The technology software kind of side of things. Um, and, and pumping station one, when I was talking with Andrew kind of got started, uh, in, in that way, 10 years ago, you know, as a bunch of people talking about software in a, in a coffee house mm-hmm. and, and, um, Safe you know, it seems, seems like, I wonder if there's a, you know, if that's one of that is one of the common threads, one of the common things that one of the, that pulls hackerspaces together. It's is, patterns for sure, right? I mean, it's uh, the same thing happened with us in Workshop Eighty Eight, right? And like what it went out on Twitter, and then we all ended up hanging out at a coffee shop for a couple months and decided we need to do more, and ended up taking the next step, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, so we've. We, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago, we started in a coffee house. A lot of us were talking about software. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people in these spaces are, are software folks, although certainly not exclusively so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's really interesting. And certainly with the, the badge projects that we work on, there's a lot of software involved. Uh, there's, there, it's, it's not just a, 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 an exercise in developing a physical thing, although that's, that's where a lot of the heavy lifting takes place, but it's also an exercise in, in designing and developing software. And so I wonder if, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, uh, now that we know kind of how, how you, uh, you know, where your interests came from and how you kind of got interested in, in, in making badges. Um, I want to get to some of the meat of this, which is what's, what's your process like in, in creating a fit, like a, a really, really interesting physical slash digital uh, slash design slash game, whatever, you know, it's got all of these different confluences. What's, where, where do you begin with, with these projects? Um, and then what's, what's that process look like, uh, going forward from there? Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, project to project's a, a little different. Um, a lot of times it's, it's just trying to, you know, you always work with like, kind of like an end experience in mind, and a lot of times, you know, I'd say for probably 80% of the projects that I've done, they tend to uh, come from, uh, you know, the, the end result is, is someone wants to achieve something, and, and, but they don't know how to get the, like, the physical artifact. Like, how do they get the badge to, to do this thing? So they, they come with, with, like, the end concept, like, oh, I want... Um, you know, I want to illustrate, like for the map art, for example, we want to illustrate the capabilities of the product. And, and then we were kind of free range to go from there to under, you know, figure out, all right, well, from a technology perspective, what are we tinkering with now? And how, we, how can we turn that into something that we want to use to, to meet the end goal of illustrating uh, how, how the product works? And then, um, you know, for, for, for ThoughtCon in particular, uh, really, like Nick and the team kind of have an aesthetic and, and kind of like some, some nostalgic type of thing that they want to highlight. And, and what I do is I kind of take their requirements. We'll sit down with them and, and kind of talk about, you know, what, what they want the look and feel to be like. Um, and, and honestly, they're, they're a lot better marketers and, and design guys than I am. Right. So like for me, I think the first one that, that we ended up doing was just like this, this rectangle type thing um, with, with a scrolling marquee uh, over a radio um, over a Zigbee radio, which was, which is really cool to implement at the time. Um, but, but it wasn't like, super creative on the design side and, and 
conversing that to the the latest one that we did um, for ThoughtCon Nine, where it was you know the whole theme of conference was a nine, and the the badge was kind of like in the shape of a nine, but it was also a key, and it kind of fit in with the whole theme of the conference with with the tic tac toe and everything. Uh, you know that that really gives us good constraints to work on. So from a technical perspective, it's usually you know what are we tinkering with at the shop, um, or, or what kind of technologies am I, am I playing with on the side? So you know we uh, use this ESP8266 Wi-Fi chip on the on the most recent one. It was something I've been playing around with at, at home a lot. Um, and then I think you were work you were using it at the IRL also and giving it to some kids for some various projects. So I, we both like the idea of of using that chip, and it was uh, well documented and supported and enough to to use in a project like this. Um, because that's that's another thing that I always take into consideration when doing these things is there, there's a lot of risk. Um, you know a lot. Of those guys are putting a lot of money forward for this uh, to support that kind of a project. So we'd have no room for error for it to not work. So having something that that's got a lot of community support um, and reference material is, is very important uh, when we're, when we're doing projects that get manufactured, you know, to, to the order of fifty, sixty thousand $60,000. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the constraints at the beginning mm-hmm. are probably, you know, first of all, I mean, I'm seeing constraints in, in business decisions, in how much money you have available. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other driving factors might be the aesthetics, um, you know, the, that are outlined at the initiation of the project. Um, what components are available? And that doesn't just mean what's been created recently. Yeah. That also probably means what literally, uh, you know, are there 1600 of these available within the next N months or something like that? And then, and then what also just kind of like what, you know, then there's this creative part of what am I playing with right now? What strikes my fancy? What is, what is, what is the thing that's new? That's cool. That, that I'm kind of, you know, for, for some reason or another haunted by, and that's, you know, that seems like uh, one of the constraints that's, that's interesting to me because it's, it's, uh, it's more driven by your, your own kind of um, intuition mm-hmm. than than these other constraints, but it, but you have all these constraints and and some of these, I mean, certainly you know you've seen a lot of projects out of hackerspaces. A lot of these considerations, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, are these are these things that you see in these kind of uh, one-off projects, or is this is this different in many ways from the you know from the the kind of the the one-off crafts and the art pieces that that are also being made at hackerspaces, not to not to um, knock them in any way, but I, I'm kind of trying to draw uh, a contrast, if there is any, between um, a project that goes from idea to maybe a, a one or a, a two, uh, you know, production thing. Only one, two, one or two are made, mm-hmm. and a contrast between that and, and and something where you you at the outset know you're going to be making a bunch of those. What, yeah. What are some of the differences? Well, there's, I mean, I'll say they're they both have value, right? You know, there, there's definitely value in something like niche and and you know something that's unique and maybe created once um but but they're miles apart as far as considerations that you have to make when you're building something that you know has to be replicated on a timeline and within a budget um so a lot of times you know there there are things that we can do or build into a prototype um that might be quick to put together uh or might actually uh you know be you have utility to to prove that you can get something to work, but then when you go to manufacture something, uh, you you have to consider 
components availability. Like, do I have enough of these things uh, to make my run? And will I have enough of them on time? Because it's, it's not just a problem of, of making it work technically. There's logistics involved. There's uh, working with manufacturers and partners uh, to make sure, you, you know, one, the, the, the group that's manufacturing your circuit board is going to get it to your assembly shop on time um, so that they can meet the targets for their runs. So there's a lot of, of soft skills um, involved rather than the hard technical skills when you're, when you're building something for scale and then making sure it's, you know, that it's one thing to do something like, uh, what we typically do where's a project with, with a deadline, a single deadline, and it's one run forever. And then it's a completely different thing from that to have something that you manufacture either on demand or repeatedly time over time, right? So it's there's there's always a lot more to it than just getting it to work, right? Or in, inventing the new thing. It's it's getting it to work consistently and, and reliably and periodically time and time again is there's an art to that also. Right. And that's something that you have to consider, you know, all throughout the process. And, yeah. and so we're at the first part of the process right now where mm -hmm. we're talking about these constraints and, you know, maybe we go back and, and you, you do some sketches. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point you have to pitch this uh, back to the, the people who run the event, Nick, and, mm -hmm. um, and kind of get their, their approval on this thing. And I imagine before that, uh, before that pitch, you probably also not just sketch the thing out, but you verified that that this will work, right? What does mm -hmm. what does that look like? How do you how do you go from sketch an idea to, you know, something on a breadboard or, um, you know, some other proof of concept? Yeah, ba I mean, basically, I go from uh, probably idea in my head and maybe like scratch notes straight to the breadboard, you know, like I dive in and just do it because I think so many people get caught up in like analysis paralysis where they're, where they're not actually working and doing on things. And a lot of the stumbling blocks and, and stones, hurdles, whatever you want to call them are going to come through the nature of, of building the thing rather than you know, looking at a schematic or watching a YouTube video or, or, you know, whatever you have to try to figure out what you want to do. I just, I dive right into throwing something onto a breadboard. And then from there, um, you know, go directly into kind of customizing it. Um, you know, typically I don't start with like the chip alone. We start with like a development board um, that has the, the core system on it. And then a few components that we want to interact with and validate uh, at a very high level, it's it's going to work the way we want it to work, and then and then from there we start paring down things that are unnecessary, right? Um, uh, for years, uh, we worked on the Arduino framework. Um, for a reason I stated before is there's there's a large community and a lot of prior art with it, but um, also because the, those parts are typically readily available. And then it's also something that uh, if people had the badge at the conference, they could take it away and then reuse it for their own projects if they wanted to. So so really anyone that's that's gone to like a ThoughtCon conference in the past uh, seven years has walked away with, whether they know it or not, they've walked away with something that they can you know, plug in and reprogram and repurpose, which, you know, to me is, is important as just through the ethos of, of hacking, right? You know, you can repurpose this thing and get it to do various things that you want. Um, and speaking, yeah, go ahead. Speaking of the, you know, kind of the, the breadboarding process and working yeah. with, you know, originally with Arduino, um, 
you, you know, and you, you talked a lot about, uh, you know, you go straight into the breadboard and that informs kind of what the thing is going to be. Would it be fair to say, like, if I were to kind of package that up a little bit, mm-hmm. that the, you know, the material, in this case, the, the components, um, the material informs the end product just as much as the sketches and the, the initial idea and constraints that you were given? Well, yeah, because I, I have to be able to make the, uh, you know, the functional aspects also work within the physical aspects of, of what's being asked for. So, and, and a lot of nuances I could dive into, you know, between, you know, what, what kind of footprint do I choose for the parts? You know, how, what side do they go on to make it aesthetically pleasing and all that kind of stuff? Do I, do I want chips on either side of the badge or do we want input and output on one side and, and another thing um there, there's all those kind of considerations that you take into account but yeah i'd say so, so i, I want to ask you so as, to follow up on yeah. that then um because this is really fascinating uh you've got this initial concept you you move from that initial concept kind of like this feeling of what the the end experience should be i think you mentioned mm-hmm. and then you you go through this process of breadboarding it um, and, and eventually, you know, you, you, you manufacture the thing and we'll talk about that in a minute and all the headaches that you've had to deal with, uh, it there, but, but this, this middle part, um, how, how much of the, of the experience and, and the feeling, um, remains at the end of, of this, uh, prototyping phase, you know, I'm sure you have to, I'm sure that changes and evolves and, and, you know, if you were to ascribe a, a kind of not a number again, right? But like a an idea of how much you think the original concept comes through in the final design. Um, how 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 would you how would you describe that? Okay, so let me repeat the question uh, to make sure I'm getting quite. So, how much of what we talk about, like in the initial meetings, makes it through typically to the end state of of what the conference attendees experience? Is that what you're trying to ask yeah how much and yeah, and yeah in the initial meetings I'm, yeah. I'm i'm talking again about the experience right, right? yeah how how much of that experience remains after the prototyping phase and how much of it has changed well I, you know i think we always come in with lofty like ambitions about what what the thing might do and, and so we always come up with a long long list of, of hey we could do this we could do that and it's all really fun and exciting and then there's things that like work good in your head or, or might work but then practically they just don't work well for whatever reason um so i'm, I'm trying to think of a good one from from last year uh that that came up early, but didn't end up, you know, and, and oh, like this one thing we talked about really early last year was, you know, we had the shape of the key, like the badger is going to be the key to something. Then we would like have have something physical that they would plug it into, and it would do something there. Um, but but then we also wanted them to be able to tap in and alter things on the badge through the console and everything like that, which was part of the challenge that we did. But the um, I think the you know. The fact of the matter is there, there wasn't a good way to uh, efficiently in the time that we had make it so that we could plug it into something and it would recognize that it was that and not just someone's laptop, right? So we had to kind of drop that as, as a piece of functionality. So there's, there's always what we have in uh, you know in the initial meeting that we want to accomplish, and then as we get down to it, you know you kind of limit it. But then that informs a more kind of I think it makes a more succinct experience for the user in in the end. Like and then you know the people that get the badges they never know. It's it's always a puzzle kind of when they get it the first time because we don't publish anything about it or, or give anything in anticipation. Um, 
it's a very very minor details right so so people don't know if they're missing out on something that we might have had an idea about very early on so yeah. right yeah that's something that we always talk about and especially and it's, what's students, really interesting yeah. what, what's what's really interesting to me is you have these early meetings and yeah you have all these lofty ideas and but you have this kind of core idea of what the experience should be and some of that's probably informed by your knowledge of the components and their what they allow what they afford mm -hmm. and i think some of that remains some of that shines through and the things that do do remain through the prototyping phase might maybe are related a little bit more to the you know what uh, our suspicions about what it means to actually use these components and have them in a device. And, and so we've got this, you know, we've, we, we've gone from, from idea to, to prototype here. And at, at what point do you go, okay, uh, we gotta, <laughs> and I, I suspect I know the answer to this, but what, at what point do you go, well, okay, we have to stop and we have to, we have to manufacture this. Yeah, thing. it's always yesterday, right? I think you always want more time. Um, but I mean, I'll say like to, to get something uh, manufactured in, in less than, you know, six weeks is very aggressive. Like, so, so you need, you know, if, if you have a partner that you know can deliver, a manufacturing partner that you know can deliver, I, I would say your minimum is probably six weeks. Now, of course, you, you can get things expedited, and and there are groups that'll get you things done a lot faster for a lot more money. But but to me, like an idea, you know, what's a fair budget in in our minds? Um, you know, we we stop months out before you know before doing anything especially on the hardware side of things and we typically give it a lot more time on the on the software because the software is always a lot more flexible and, and pretty much down to the moment you you decide hey yeah let's let's start programming these things you can you can really make changes if you want to but on, on the hardware side of things you have to lock it down you know, months months ahead of time so so we jump into into scaling this mm -hmm. thing and what is that? What does that process look like for for you? Um, well, well, scaling, you know, there's there's components of that, right? Like, um, I'm I'm also trying to scale for cost on a lot of these projects, right? Because they're, um, it, I guess, in any, you know, even if it's if it's a funded project where we're just doing cost recovery, like for ThoughtCon, or if it's something where we're building something on a on a commission job, uh, you know, we're, we're always trying to manage the the cost down to what's, you know, what will make it work um, and and be reliable and safe. Uh, Scaling it, it, it goes about to you know what what components are, do I have available to me at the time? Um, how how can I arrange the board in such a way that uh, you know when when you produce a, a PCB, you know typically they don't come out uh, like individual pieces. They're they're smashed on a panel. So so how can I get the dimensions and everything in, in such a way that I can work with my manufacturing partners to to get the boards uh, into an optimal dimension for them to shorten the time that they need to run that job um, because that's going to inform the cost, of course. You know, if I if I have a huge board and then the assembly machine is throwing parts from the bottom to the top, uh, you know, that that's not efficient for the machine, and it's going to cost a lot more um, to to manufacture uh, in in the end. So, always, you know, space considerations. Uh, you know, how how can I make it so uh, 
I can put as many of the surface mount components on a single side close together um, so that they can be manufactured quickly so I can keep my machine time costs down. Uh, and then also, you know, for like last year, we had, had a screen component that had to be soldered on by hand. So pick a component that they can use and a fix quickly is is important for scaling and then on the other hand you know the, the other thing we always have to think about how to scale and, and manage is when we program these things um we, we typically flash them directly uh right from from workstations and things like that now there there are ways that you can go ahead and um send code to manufacturer, you send binaries and have them flash it uh, on the chips before they get placed on the boards. Um, but there's a, there's a fee to, for that too. And then there's also a time cost, right? Like we have a lot less time to refine what that software experience is like. So we, we haven't done that yet. So. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm sure when I ask you, um, you know, what, what, uh, what's changed and evolved over time in your process of making these things and what you'd like to be doing in the future that might come up again. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. because we've talked about it for the past two years and, uh, you know, it just never comes to fruition. Yep. So, but what I'm hearing is, you know, scaling, especially for these digital physical products, right? These things that, um, you know, they have a physical component, you can hold them in your hand, but also, um, you know, are connected are interconnected, yeah. um, you know, via, via links that, that are, you know, seemingly illogical right they're 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 ephemeral um you know it's it's just connected by the internet you can you can hook a toaster up to a uh, a car if you wanted yep. to um and and it doesn't have to make any sense but you know for scaling uh, i digress okay. you, you know you, uh, for for these things you're talking about the, the the digital side of scaling and and the physical side of scaling and, and these these both have kind of their own um challenges uh, you know, which is which is really interesting because I don't think up until, you know, the the rise of you know whatever you want to call it, IoT or um, embedded systems or, or what you know all of these different things really, uh, you, you you didn't have to think about as much. And so, um, do you think that's a different? It's a different process than before, or is it just two processes mashed together? Or is there what, what are the unique challenges that are, are presented by digital making a digital physical thing? Well, uh, as I mean, the the biggest challenge I th I think that making something that's both digital and physical is how to make it like usable uh, and connected at the same time. Because I, I think there's there's the capability to make something like like a button that goes on the internet but the to make something that's easy to be used um that, that's intuitive uh and is also safe uh to use is the other thing and I'm, I'm thinking safety not from like a physical i'm going to cut my hand open perspective but is this thing safe to put on a network you know alongside my other devices you know you know much much less with with anything i might have on on my uh my network that's like a computer system or something but uh you know the topic for another time is probably you know how to how to safely have things on your network. It should be segmented and all that kind of stuff, but that's, that's not what we're talking about here. But I, I think the biggest challenge is, is there's a lot of people because of the affordability now of, of all these radios and chips that can get just about any piece of shit on the internet. Right. And it's going to, it, yeah, that I think that's going to catch up very quickly is, is so many of these things that are um, not designed with, 
uh, you know, the security in mind at the end and they're, they're just out there to get connected. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's an interesting, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the security thing. Um, you know, absolutely. You know, and we've talked about this before as well. Um, you know, there is that whole component of we're putting out boards, for instance, at ThoughtCon that, uh, you know, a group of students can, can program. I think you've, you've made this example before and, um, they're highly insecure. Um, I, you know, obviously there is that other physical security component. Mm-hmm. Like when, um, when the iPhone first came out with, you know, the, and you could get your directions on the phone and the directions were notoriously bad and people were driving in the lakes oh, yeah, or whatever yeah, those stories yeah. were, you know, there's, there's that physical security sure, uh, component yeah. as, yeah. Um, as, as well. And so, yeah, yeah. So we have, you know, we have these students at DePaul working on these projects, um, and and you and I certainly have to think about some of these these concerns. Uh, and before that, you had people at Workshop eighty eight working on these devices as mm-hmm. well. And and so I wonder, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, first of all, you've been doing this for so long. How have your how has your process evolved over time? Has it changed at all uh, as you work yeah. with with you know all these other people? Um, and then what are some of the the challenges or considerations that you faced working with with you know other people on these projects? Yeah. Well, I'll say the I mean the the biggest thing that I've I've we've done in the past that we just don't do now you know, is based on experiences. We used to do things throughout the course of the process, especially like in the prototyping, to do just because we could do them. Um, things like developing our own boards at the shop with like photolithography and things like that. So, you know, using a piece of copper clad and, and printing our circuit onto a transparency and then exposing that like you would a photograph and then using some chemical etchants to, to wipe away the copper and, and make a board. And that physically works and everything. Um, but, but it takes time and it's really not necessary with this cheap as you know prototypes have gotten for boards um so you know back i I designed my first pcb uh, at at a design project in college i remember that when we made that pcb we sent it off and it would take six weeks to get a prototype back Um, and now you can you can send your order halfway across the world and get it you know, from China in a couple days, um, probably for less money than we, we did at that point in time. So, so, you know, what, what do I do differently now than, than what we did in, in the past is just short circuit, all that stuff, you know, we will essentially go from, all right, I know it works on a breadboard to let's fire up Eagle and, and start to design the board and, and get something that we can ship out to, um, a place like, uh, you know, like Osh Park that would make a, a prototype for us and, and get it turned around pretty quickly. Um, and as, as far as working with, with people, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, just kind of setting the boundaries about, um, you know, what are the final capabilities going to be on the board? And then, you know, who, who's working on which components uh, and make sure those people are working together, um, not just in silos. Because when you do a project like this and you have, uh, you know, four or five different people writing code for, for their part of the project that they're passionate on, um, making sure, you know, that, that they're not taking up too much memory on the flash like anytime you do something with a microcontroller not only are are you talking about the constraints on on the cost and the availability of the components but but you know with with the actual uh real estate that you have to throw code on there it's not like programming for a computer um and and working with an embedded system is is definitely not like writing a computer program there's there's physical um things that you need to take into consideration and then also um things that, that like a traditional operating system will do with its memory that make it 
safe to run simultaneous programs with that just don't exist in a microcontroller world. So making sure those things come together seamlessly um, and frequently so that we can catch those things before it's too late to, you know, make a change that might need to be done at the hardware layer. I'd say those are the biggest well, When you talk, when you talk about things coming mm -hmm. together and, and, you know, kind of different people owning different parts of a project, yeah. how, especially for these badges, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, these custom circuit boards, what, how, how do you, um, distribute, uh, work amongst, you know, a group of people working on these things, uh, you know, and what's the best way to do that? Do you think you found any best practices for distributing well, work? On, I mean, on a, work on working a, with, with yeah. volunteers and working for people that, that are paid to work for you is, is a completely different thing. So, you know, I always let people gravitate and work to what they're passionate on. Um, even if, if something that they're working on is something that I would rather be working on, you know, like myself, but, you know, being typically the leader of the project, it's, it's setting aside and delegating that and just letting people, I, my feeling is if, if you are passionate and gravitating towards something, you're going to do your best job at that. Um, so I, I'd never made, you know, someone do something that they're like not interested in for, for part of the project, at least, at least to my knowledge, you know, I'm always trying to make sure people are working on, on what, what interests them the most, cause then they're going to output the best result. Right. And what, what are some of those, those things that people are gravitating towards then? What are the what are the responsibilities? Well, that, yeah, I mean, it depends on the person. Like, on. Um, you know, our, the guy that did the uh, the physical boards for the longest time, um, Paul Rich, was an ex Motorola engineer that was was doing some of his own CAD stuff at home, and then that was what he gravitated towards, like doing the actual board for for a while. So, the first two or three, he made the the PCB part. You know, after we came together and, and had the design, um, and I, I was focusing mainly on the, on the software side of things uh, and the system design side of things. Uh, and then, you know, when I started traveling a bit, you know, I, I had to take on the the actual part of doing the the board which is is probably the more gratifying thing to me because because for me I, I really enjoy you know we're working in a um capacity where i'm either like rolling out software or some kind of testing tool um or or just developing you know some kind of artifact that that's like a a, a document right you know there, there's something to be said about uh putting your, your time and effort into something and then getting like a physical artifact, holding it in your hand and seeing it, that that's super gratifying for me. So, um, that's, that's how I, you know, like that, that's the part that I would like to do most, most of the time, but it doesn't always like fit the team dynamic. Right. Right. So, so you've got the curiosity component that drives your work, but then it's also that kind of, um, you know, there's something, Especially, you know, this is something I notice a lot with people who work in in, in software or in the digital space is, uh, you know, they tend to gravitate towards things that, that generate physical artifacts in, in their spare <laughs> time because there's something gratifying about that, too. So yeah. I don't know if that's, you know, if you could talk about that yeah, a little bit. Um, um, uh, I think it's just uh, kind of like moving from a, an analog world to a, to a digital world, something that, that you miss out on. I think like a great book that touches on all that stuff is like the Zen and art of motorcycle maintenance, right? You know, like the value of, of working, working within the physical world. And, um, you know, for, for me, like one of the coolest things I get to do is, as I go around the industry, you know, I'll, I'll visit people at, at their jobs. Um, 
you know, especially when I was still working as a, uh, you know, product developer and a, a consultant and going on site to clients is I'd, I'd walk around a cube farm and see, you know, one of the badges that we made it hanging from someone's cube or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll meet a buddy in the industry out and they'll have the thing hanging from their rear view mirror or something. That's, that's a super cool feeling. It's like, Hey, yeah, I, I made that thing and now it's out there. Right. Um, I'm sure it's, it's, pales in comparison to like the Johnny Ivies and the guys that develop things like iPhones or, or whatever else is out there as a consumer product. But, um, the, the, the feeling I'm sure has to be very similar. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, coming from a somewhat similar space of, you know, making digital things in, in, in my case, you know, doing some video games. Yeah here and there and then to have a game on of like a physical console that mm-hmm. that's custom right it's a, you know we're essentially we've been talking about right. this entire time is is making a game console and and then, then designing the games and and then programming the games and, and putting them on there and um you know there's something satisfying uh, about that for for me and um you know i think it's important to talk about on on this podcast because you know so many people um, are missing out on that that physical component and and what I wanted to kind of wrap up mm-hmm. with here is just like a quick quick kind of question we 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 let off with with talking about you know your background in in electrical engineering at Purdue one of the best best schools in the nation for that world um, and and how your your development of physical things led into your development of of or, or your interest in cybersecurity which is certainly um, I don't know what the right word is for that. Softer is a softer skill is, is a, is a skill that requires less physical things. Certainly, although physical things are involved yeah. in it, um, you, you know, you're doing a lot more, more work on the, on the digital side of things. Um, and so my question, my question is kind of, well, maybe it's a twofold question. I'm not sure, but, um, it, you know, f- first, um, is there, is there, do you look at creating physical things differently than you used to? Um, you know, back when you were, you know, you were getting your, your education in electrical engineering. Uh, and then, and then if you do, um, what, what has changed that process? Has it been your involvement in, in, you know, this digital world or what's, you know, what's, what's evolved over time? Uh, so from a, from a creative or like, I guess how I approach the work aspect, I mean, I'd say, if, if I was not uh, in the cybersecurity field, I would probably not do electronics projects on, you know, secondarily or like on the side as a, as a hobby, right? Because it's it's part of. I, I think it's it's like a balance, right? It, it's if it were my day job, I wouldn't want to do it. Like I, I typically don't come home anymore these days, and uh, you know crank on on software projects or do much thing many things in in the realm of of you know soft i guess what, what you would call soft skills but it, it's actually hard technical type stuff so so for me it's about balance right so i, I think if i had went into a, a traditional electrical engineering type job um i'd probably do things on the side that are more like make a website like a web app or something like that you know it, it's it's finding some kind of balance so it, for me it's scratching an itch of, of something i enjoyed doing um that is not a huge part of of my vocation right now right oh, yeah that's you know that's um that's kind of actually really insightful uh i don't mean to sound surprised by that but 
but you know, as we talk about the, the you know the maker kind of movement, and I, you know, I always have to preface yeah. that by saying I don't really know if it's a movement, it's a movement. or not. But as we talk about that, and the people who are in, in involved in maker spaces and things like that, and if a lot of them are in in the digital kind of side of things, what you might be seeing is just this bleed over of you know, um, you know, number one, I'm I'm tired of doing digital things during the day, and so I'm going to do something physical. But you know what? I'm probably going to take some of those digital skills and synthesize them with whatever that physical thing is that I'm doing uh, on the side. Um, cool. So Rudy Rustich, thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I think still maybe we think the vice president of Workshop 88, <laughs> awesome. um, the, the purveyor of the ThoughtCon badges and uh, top secret uh, cybersecurity guy during the day um really appreciate you you coming on here man thank you uh if 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 people want to find you uh on on the internet anywhere um or uh get in touch uh how should they do that uh i'm pretty old school i have my twitter (laughs) you can i don't i'm not super active with my twitter like some people are but you can definitely reach out and contact me i had a few people out at defcon um connect with me for the first time over twitter uh at r-a-r-s-e-c and um, just email me, Rudy, at workshop88.com. Uh, no, no website or blog to note. Um, I'm on Facebook, but uh, I will not. I, I, I'm on a Facebook diet, so that's not the best way to reach me. So, Attaboy. Yeah. All right, Rudy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And um, I look forward to, uh, to working with you this year on, on our badge project. And that should do it for session two of the This Should Work podcast. Big thanks to Rudy Ristich of Workshop 88 and ThoughtCon Badge fame for joining us uh, in this session two. Uh, In session three, looking forward, uh, we're going to be having Jen Lawhead, who was the first ever head lab moderator of the Ideal Realization Lab at DePaul University. And uh, currently, by the way, working at Bosch out here in Illinois, uh, talking with us about uh, some of the things she's doing at Bosch and uh, you know her early experiences in making as a college student. So look forward to that, and uh, thanks for listening. And if you're looking to jump on our previous podcasts, check out our show notes or anything else, please visit shouldworkmedia.com. That's shouldworkmedia.com. And uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening again. Bye.